You're listening to the David Bumble Networking Podcast. Very good day interviewing a lot of Cisco engineers. We discuss all things networking, CCNA, CCNP, CCIE, Python, automation, the books, the exams, the future, your career. Another long day at Cisco Live. We talk to the authors, the experts, the leaders, and people like you and me. David Bumble coming to you from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Now, here's your host, David Bumble. Hey everyone, it's David Bumble coming to you from Cisco Live in Barcelona. I'm here with Brian. Brian is part of the DevNet team, but as always, I'm going to let him do the introduction of himself because I'll probably get it wrong. Thank you, David. So my name is Brian Byrne, and I'm what Cisco calls a technical solutions architect. I'm a pre-sales resource that's uh, out there helping customers integrate some of our larger scale solutions together. So my job is to take the very complex technologies that we have, integrate them together, and help our customers actually take advantage of those services. Now that's that's great. I mean, Brian, it was funny yesterday when we were speaking, you introduced yourself saying that you worked in sales and straight away I thought you know sales you, you can't be serious and then like you I mean it's a joke guys I mean I have this um, feeling about sales and then you explain now you're in pre-sales and you're a CCIE and there's a lot of technical knowledge so give us a bit of your history so that you know everyone knows where you're from sure thank you so it was a little eye-opening uh, a couple of weeks ago. I realized that I'm quickly approaching my 10-year anniversary as a CCIE. Wow. And as I looked back at that, um, I've realized that I've actually been in IT for roughly 25 years, wow. which is now crossing the halfway point of my life. I've been doing this for, for most of my life. Um, I started, though, before I came to Cisco, uh, I started out working with X25 networks. We have to l- bring in our legacy protocols. Uh, but I worked for an organization called CompuServe Network Services that's no longer there. But what yeah. that resulted in is about a 14-year career with various global service providers. Um, my last day with that global service provider, though, was I had Tier 3 operational support for about 300,000 managed devices in that environment. So big, large-scale BGP yeah. and QoS was my background. Um, after about 14 or 15 years, uh, I got tired of the late night phone calls, got late, tired of the late night pagers were a thing back then. Yeah. Uh, and I actually took an opportunity to go over to Cisco and, and uh, take the pre-sales SE role. Uh, I spent the first four years of my career directly covering a couple of accounts uh, tied to healthcare. So helping healthcare organizations use wireless and, and land switching environments to help better patient care. Uh, and then I transitioned to specifically covering what Cisco calls enterprise networks portfolios, but route switch technologies and really uh, my passion around. Uh, big routing environments and, and big BGP, big QoS environments. That's kind of where I got to today. So, Brian, I mean, you were working in big environments a long time ago. Something I've heard about network automation is it's, or network programmability, it's just hype. You know, it's another fad. It's perhaps like OpenFlow or something else. Is that true? Um, what are your feelings about that? And, you know, and did you do network automation years ago and perhaps not call it that? Sure, so... It wasn't called network automation 10 to 12 years ago when I was doing it, but it existed. And it's like anything, unless you market it, it really doesn't exist. But technically, these concepts were there. So when I think back to my time, and while there were 300,000 devices, they were broken up into smaller customers. But if we needed to make a change that touched 50 or 100 routers, we needed a tool or we need something in place to do more so than cut and paste under router configurations. Probably the first case of what I would call something close to network automation was when, frankly, we discovered we made a configuration mistake with a technology called EasyVPN that impacted about 12,000 routers. We had to go through, yeah, we had to go through and make configuration changes across all of these. And as we were going through that process, one of the things that we noted, if you know EasyVPN, there's a concept of a group entity and we had a 
per customer, per device specific entry for that. Yeah. Well, that made creating a script of some type very difficult from that perspective. Um, we had a phenomenally intelligent guy on our team, a guy by the name of Andrew Waltz, super smart guy. And Andrew actually went through just using tools like Bash, Sed, oh, wow. and Awk, actually was able to take a customer configuration, import the DMVPN config, convert it to something that we could use for reusable functionality, and then he created this nice little cut and paste script. It was still cut and paste, but it would remove the old configuration, rebuild the new configuration, and then moving forward, because we had changed our naming structure, that allowed us to make consistent changes through an automation tool that we had in place that really was just CLI pushes from a device, but this allowed us to touch multiple de devices at the same time. Again, we didn't call it automation. Yeah. We just called it getting our con configuration changes done in an environment. Cut to four years later as we start building these things out from DevNet, now there's a whole naming convention behind it. There's this whole automation piece. So it's been there. It's just now we'll say the trade rags are starting to pick up on, on this cool concept that's in place. Yeah, so I mean, that's really cool. So remind me, how many years ago was that when you guys did that change? Yeah, so those changes were happening roughly about 10 years ago. So I, I was making these changes on networks as recent as eight years ago before I stopped being hands-on. But we probably started this about 10 years ago. And to that point, if we kind of bring it back to some of the technology pieces, one of the reasons I'm here at Cisco Live is I do a session on NetConf and Yang. Yeah. And one of the pieces I call out on my session is the RFC for NetConf, so an automation protocol that we use to interact with devices, that RFC was ratified in 2006. Which yeah, means the way our ago. standards bodies work, that probably started sometime around 2004 is when they started working through that process. So these are concepts that have been there for extended periods of time. And frankly, our service providers have been using these for years to support their environments. It's now filtering, though, more down into the enterprise, into the, into the smaller mid-market organizations as they're understanding, I just want to do things faster. Yeah. So a question, you know, coming based on what you said, you know, doing things faster or quicker. Um, a fear that a lot of network guys have perhaps is my job's going to be taken away by this stuff. Um, so that's one. Another would be I shouldn't become a network engineer. I should just become a programmer. So what are your thoughts about that? So a couple of things come to mind first. When we look at automation, we're not taking away the knowledge that a network engineer has. Someone still has to understand at a protocol level what's happening in the network, what's the impact of this overall change, what automation does. Yes, it speeds things up, but as something was pointed out to me recently, it also speeds up my ability to make massive mistakes in my environment as well. But the way that I like to, to uh, make this, as we were talking earlier, I kind of joke that, believe it or not, I do see a personal trainer. I don't see a personal I'm trainer. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned yeah, it. Because, because I don't know how to work out or I don't know exercises to do. But anytime I do something more than about three or four times, I get bored and I stop paying attention. It's the same thing when we look at making the same change in the network over and over again. It becomes rote, control V, control C, that leads to mistakes. Yeah. Automation is an area, again, provided we understand the change that we're making, we script it correctly. Automation removes the human error element or aspect that comes out as humans just don't have enough train of thought to get things. I, I always, when I talk to my customers and I hear this a lot from them, one of the pieces I tell them is that humans are great at solving problems. Network engineers are by nature problem solvers. We're really bad at repetitive tasks. Yeah. The machines are the exact opposite. They don't solve complex problems very well, but repetitive tasks, they do phenomenal work from that standpoint. So absolutely, uh, the, the network engineer has an incredibly relevant role. I think really where it comes down to is should you go into more software development or more network, where is your passion at? 
where are the things that's important to you to actually get involved with, with uh, whether it's, it's going to be configuring devices or BGP configs or actually writing the scripts that allow that to happen? So do you, do you saying basically there's two paths for someone or possibly two paths for someone who's new to this. They can go full on being a software developer or they can be a network engineer but learn a bit about programming. Is that right? Or I, I think you could probably sum that up as, as two paths. I, I think that regardless of a path that you take, you have to understand the, each, and other, each other piece. Uh, and I was having a conversation with, with a peer of mine uh, on this topic this week that as a network engineer, I have to have enough basic programming understanding that if my organization uses automation, I need to at least understand something that happens. The script is inevitably going to break. The change is inevitably going to break. I have to be able to do basic debugging of, the, of that functionality to understand what's happening. And as a network developer, as a developer who's trying to build automation scripts, if I don't understand BGP, well, as I'm writing my script, I might miss nuance to the configuration, or I might not understand what's happening from that perspective. So I think you need to understand a little bit of both. The way that I look at it is, uh, as we're in uh, Barcelona, yeah. uh, a large Spanish-speaking country, uh, believe it or not, I took eight years of Spanish uh, between high school and college, can't speak a lick of it, but I can, I can read Spanish a little bit. I, there's, there's enough that if I look at it long enough, I can get the gist of what they're saying. I, I look at it some of, of that level as that, I don't need to be conversational, but I need to at least be able to understand enough so that I can get to where I need, where I need to go or, or maybe decide what I'm going to eat from that, that standpoint. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. So in other words, you, you don't have to necessarily be the best Python programmer in the world, but you need to have an understanding. So do you think there's, there's like different roles perhaps where, you, and I mean, it'll be interesting to get your take on this. Like a guy who doesn't want to learn anything, it's like pure network guy, he might fall away, he might struggle to get a job. And then you've got like a guy who's prepared to put the work in, won't necessarily become a software developer, but because he understands, he can interface with, with programmers. And then perhaps a third guy who you know, can do coding as well. So you know, what are the paths do you think for people and what's the result of that? I think there's roles for everyone. And I think back to my service provider days as a, as a pure BGP QoS engineer, BGP and QoS are always going to have problems. There is a role for that person or that, that CCI level knowledge of operationalizing the networks. We still have to run our networks. And there is a place, and if that's where you're passionate at, by all means, please chase down that path. But it's very high level. It's not like CCNA level. Is that Co right? Correct. Yeah, correct. It's, it's that, you mentioned that, CCIE. I, I did, and it's, there's, a, there's a place for the CCIE person. Yeah. There's a place for the NP and there's the place for the IE. And, and, and I use that. We tend to see the more advanced degree or certification that someone has, the more set they become in the path that they're going to take. Um, but I, I think for that person, even NP to IE level knowledge set, if you want to be that subject matter expert in an organization from protocol and configuration levels, there is a role for you. There always will be because no matter how well we build our networks, they're going to break and you're going to be the person they're going to rely on to fix that problem. On the other side, as automation becomes more and more uh, deployed in networks, as it becomes more prevalent in, in organizations, the job market's going to open up vast or large, in a large portion for those users. They need people to fill those roles. There's going to be an opportunity in, the, in those cases. Uh, my view, I, I, I tend to be a little bit more conservative from that standpoint that if I live in both worlds a little bit, should anything ever happen, it gives me an opportunity to have flexibility. I look about it a little bit in terms of, of resume building. If I'm a CCNP or a CCIE and I put a resume in front of someone and I also have some automation 
on my resume, that's going to, like, we may be looking for a BGP or an OSPF expert, but they also have this skill set. That's something we'd like to have in-house. So I, I think there's a play for all three of those. Again, it's, it's back to where you're the most, the most comfortable kind of picking technologies up. So, so basically, if I understand right, you're saying that there's still a role for like a pure network engineer, but perhaps the opportunities are going to get fewer. Uh, but if you learn network automation, there's probably going to be more opportunities for you. Did I understand that right or is that wrong? I think that's right to, to a certain extent. Where I, I think it might be a little bit more nuanced to it is the the pure network engineer is going to pick up automation for no other reason than that's the direction that the industry's that the okay. industry is moving in. So you're kind uh, of being forced to go that way. Forced or it just happens. I mean, let's be honest. IPX, you still <laughs> IPX isn't, but uh, yeah, I'll give you another example of, oh, of where automation worked in my, for me. When I was working on my CCIE, there were times that I would. I needed to test OSPF, and I needed to generate some networks, so I built a bunch of... It's okay. Keep going. So, so <laughs> I built a bunch of loopback addresses. Well, typing loopback interface 123 10 or 12 times to generate those, that wasn't a whole lot of fun. No. I wrote a bash script to generate loopback interfaces so that I could then quickly paste those into an environment. Again, is it automation in the way that we look at it today? Probably not. But these are just things that I looked at how to simplify what I do on a daily basis. I think that's... It's not necessarily forced, but... Engineers are smart people. They're always looking for a better way to get things done. They're naturally inquisitive. You're going to pick things up over time just by nature of being in this industry. Yeah, sorry for that interruption. We're like standing in a public area here and people are walking by and that's the way it goes. So, Brian, we were speaking earlier about, you know, certifications. Do you think, and I'm going to put you on the limb here, so it's your opinion. You know, whatever you, you think. Sure. Are certs still valuable? Should I get a certification? You know, is it worth getting certified or should I just forget about that and go and do Python? So it's a simple question. Not an easy answer. It's not an easy answer. And, and I'll, I'll say that uh, early in my career, and, and I'll, I'll take a step back. Uh, and, and again, another thing we talked about a little bit earlier I don't come from a formal CIS background. In fact, I have a degree in psychology yeah, uh, for, the, amazing. for the folks in the U.S., and it was from the Ohio State University. And while I am proud of my university, they're mostly known for their football team. So you could imagine uh, that. But uh, I, I don't come from a traditional IT background. Most of what I learned was self-taught, and most of that came from working on certifications. And certifications are a great tool, especially earlier in your career, to validate your knowledge. Yeah. Uh, they're a great tool of providing a learning map on how to get to where I'm going. I loved, actually, while I'm very proud of my IE, I liked the NP track more, or the professional track more, because there were consistent checkpoints of your knowledge. If I'm going to go through the switch exam, I can validate that I know switch, I can yeah. go through route. It helped me learn to where I was at. The, the frustration I had with the IE is that uh, at the end of that process, I was better at my job going through the three attempts that I took, two fails and a pass on the IE, I was better at my job by going through that process. I was frustrated because I didn't have a piece of paper that validated that, that it was there. So, and, and I still think that certifications are important, but I think the, the farther you get into your career, they become less relevant because what ends up happening, and I, I think that for the typical engineer path is that we start out as that operations guy and we start moving up the stack and as you move more into uh, an architectural role I still talk about BGP a lot 
I don't do a lot of BGP configuration, and let's be honest, something like the CCIE, that's an operational exam. Is, yeah. um, I, I think though, whether it's certifications or on the flip side, as you start looking at the network automation piece, there's absolute value in that path because that's the skill set that's moving forward. If you want to look at it from the perspective of what's going to keep getting me new jobs or new opportunities, automation will continue to do it from that, that standpoint. The problem with the automation path today is the onus is on you to figure that out. A lot, problem, it, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it is uh, get really comfortable with, with stack overflow and a lot of searches as to how things work. And that's if you're a naturally inquisitive person, that's a great path to go. And that's frankly the reason why I've been spending so much time working on network automation is because it's a lot of, what is this? How does this work? What's the next logical step? I'm finding that every time I think I figure something out, I have to take the next step forward and figure out the next, the next aspect of it. So I, I think that there's, there's paths for both, uh, but it, it really comes down to where you're passionate about. The, the biggest part where I have seen peers, friends, coworkers fall down trying to further their career is when they tell me, I my boss tells me I have to get this certification. Yeah. If it's something you have to do and not something you want to do, it's never going to work for you. Yeah, that's really great advice. So Brian, I mean, you moved from operations, uh, you, you worked on very, very big networks, and all the way today to teaching people um, programmability. So, you know, through your teachings of hundreds or thousands of people, have you got any advice for someone starting? You know, like if I was sitting in your class today, you know, wh what would you tell me? So that's a great question, and, and I'm going to answer it a little bit differently. It, yeah. uh, so I tell people that I have a psychology degree, and, and very early in my career, I was embarrassed by the fact that I had a psychology because I felt that I wasn't adequate or I didn't align up to what a lot of my peers were in those cases. I have an accountancy degree. <laughs> Well, and that's one of the things that I found is that there's a lot of people that are in this industry that came from it from a very non-traditional path, I guess, is what I, what I would call from that standpoint. And uh, I've had a lot of people tell me like, oh, you'll be great in this pre-sales role with your psychology because you understand how minds work. That's not really the case. I love psychology. Uh, I found it incredibly interesting. But the first thing they teach you day one of anything around how to do therapy, not that I was a therapist, uh, but it's... There you go, man. Yeah, network therapist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, should be my new tag name. So it's that you're not there to fix people. You're there to help them with problems. No, no, no. I'm a, I'm a fixer in life. Ask my wife. I try to fix problems. You want to tell me about a problem? I don't want to listen. I want to tell you how, exactly. how to fix it. Yeah. I found that while I was passionate about that, I wasn't good at it. What I found in networking is there's a lot of problems and people need help fixing it exactly. from that, that standpoint. Um, but what that really led to is the way that I learned, and this is where the psychology piece came in, where my focus at, at university was around how people learn and how people process information. Um, while it was one of the, the, my favorite class at Ohio State, and it was a running joke, I took a class called the Psychology of Monkeys and Apes. Psychology of Monkeys and Apes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And what was great routers about the- Routers and switches. Yeah, exactly, routers <laughs> and switches. What the, the professor in this case had done is she had actually taught a series of chimpanzees the basics of arithmetic and addition. Oh, wow. To me, that was incredibly interesting. And, and we spent a lot of time, it kind of led me down this path of taking a lot of courses around how people learn and understanding that what resonates with me doesn't necessarily resonate with you, where I'm someone who learns by failure. I've failed a lot in my life. It's something that I do very, very well. But what I find is when things don't work the way that they should, I then spend time trying to figure out why. I tend to, um, 
I'm not someone who's going to read the manual. I'll, I'll, I tell people all the time, read the configuration guide at the top. The words matter. Don't just go right to the configuring all the command lines. But I tend to be the person that goes to configure all the command lines. Yep. And it, as things fail and you start to debug things, that's where I get my knowledge set out of. I was talking to uh, Denise Fishburne Fish, a lot of people know her yeah, on Twitter yeah. yesterday, and she was talking about how she was recording some videos and she was having a hard time because she's a very visual learner and she didn't have anything behind her to kind of help with that, that piece. So uh, it's been a unique challenge that how I like to learn may not be how you like to learn, yeah. but it gives me an opportunity to get out and talk to people in different formats. But uh, while my job as a pre-sales engineer is to solve complex problems, a big portion of my time, whether it's here at DevNet teaching people about network programmability or going out and talking to my customer bases around how SD-WAN really works, is I do education for people. They may not view it that way, but I'm educating them on concepts and topics and how things work. Uh, when I'm standing at a whiteboard and I'm explaining to them how we're going to integrate this with BGP in their environment, I'm just not telling like, we're going to do A, B, C, and D. We're going to do A, B, C, and D because of this reason. Like That's the piece that I'm very passionate okay. about is kind of teaching that aspect of, of what's going on from that perspective. So now you've just raised another topic and hopefully we've got enough time. So you're going to have to stop me when you, when you run out of time. So I'm glad you've got these communication skills because now I want you to explain SD-WAN in layman's <laughs> terms what is SD-WAN? Great. So now you're really putting me on the spot <laughs> to see if, I, if, I, if I'm, I'm good at my job. So, I'm kidding. Good yeah, yeah. So I like to look at SD-WAN as, as what problems that we're solving on the network. And there's a couple of very key, key components to it. The first is, uh, despite what many of our users believe, uh, bandwidth is not air. It's not a God-given right to have access to. Uh, so as... MPLS, or as applications grow and the need for, for demand on bandwidth grow for application needs, MPLS can't be our sole leg for that because it's costly. We have this really inexpensive thing called internet, but I have applications that have different SLA needs. Internet? What's that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we actually probably both predated the internet by about that much. Yeah. So, uh, so something like being able to leverage a low-cost commodity service uh, across to use that. So the idea there is SD-WAN builds an overlay across those. We call this transport independence. It doesn't matter what's running underneath. Essentially, I'm going to put my application on the path that best meets the need. So if I have an application like Voice that has very specific delay and, and uh, jitter requirements, I'm going to measure performance and I'm going to make sure that it goes across this path. Yeah. When I see impairment, I move it. So that's the first piece, and that's frankly, everybody does that in the market. We did that with iWAN, our previous SD-WAN offering. Our VIPTEL solution does it as well. Don't mean to be too salesy here. But at the same time, when we start looking at the next pieces, we've started kind of this SD-WAN transition, the move towards the cloud. It is just not a word that people from Cisco or your vendors come in and say, cloud, cloud, cloud. It's here. Yeah. All of my customers are making that move. So the idea is, how do I extend my WAN into these services, like whether that's AWS or Google or, or Azure, or how do I move my traffic off to uh, Office 365 or some of these software as a service solutions? And the way that we reached this with SD-WAN is essentially by using policy-driven network. And when I say policy, I say, look, this application type needs to flow across this path into the network. I, can, I want to bring that into a virtual device. I want to encrypt that path into the environment because this may be a critical customer database where I'm accessing, so I want to secure that path. And maybe for that cloud service like Office 365 or something similar, I just want to put that directly out on the internet natively because that's the best path to the application. The big difference here is we're getting away from relying on things like complex BGP configurations to re move that traffic around and truly getting to the point where I'm abstracting that network config from a controller and I'm leveraging that to program my network to do what I need it to do from that, that aspect. 
So, I'm going to be the grumpy network engineer. Sure. Are you not just talking about DMVPN? <laughs> In certain respects, yes. DMVPN is an overlay. It's a phenomenal overlay that Cisco's been using for years. But where the true power comes in is this idea of a controller. And again, software-defined, I understand, is one of those terms that's probably a little overused these days. Just a bit. But this idea that with, with DMVPN, while it was very simple to configure, I could take my branch templates and I just change two lines and I paste into the next device, I'm still very much reliant upon what the routing protocol tells me that I can do. Whether I'm using EIGRP or BGP, we don't do OSPF across DMVPN because that's a CCIE lab question and we don't run CCIE labs in the middle of our network, <laughs> all right? But the routing protocol that we're running across the network, we're still dependent on that. And yes, I can use a BGP route map to force traffic, maybe to use a different site or something similar, but I'm very much dependent on what that policy is. Or I get into things like route maps or, 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 uh, or policy maps where I'm redirecting traffic. Again, complex configurations. What SD-WAN does is, because I'm abstracting the control plane, and understand you know, we've got our control plane and our data plane, I move the control plane up to a controller, I have a central point to program the network, and essentially force those configuration changes down, which allows me to do more complex topologies. I have a scenario that, say I have an application that I want to pass through a firewall that sits at a site that's different than where my default route points me to. I can, via policy, define that so that I go site one to the firewall, off to whatever the, the routing path for that is. That's not something that I can do today very easily from a BGP perspective, especially if maybe I only want to do that for three of my 20 sites that I have as part of my location. So it's really abstracting that configuration layer and simplifying the config. The other piece is, and again, I understand GUIs are a very bad word for network engineers, yep. uh, but the GUI simplifies the overall configuration. It doesn't take away my need to understand what's happening in the network because again, eventually things won't work the way that they're supposed to. Conceptually, I have to have all those pieces. I'm taking away all of, all of the, the repetitive tasks of making those configuration changes. The other thing, and my demo that we're showing this week that's awesome, is not only is it just GUI based, but also this, is, this will be a little product pitchy, I'm sorry, that's you're gonna, right. you're gonna we'll, get it with we'll this. Forgive you. But, so, but as we look at this, one of the things that we do with our Viptela offering is that we expose an API structure so that if I have, say, an Ansible provisioning engine in my environment or that's my provisioning tool, I can actually use Ansible to send REST calls into vManage and provision my network rather than using the GUI. That allows me to move that aspect of turning up the network into how I want to work as opposed to how the vendor wants me to work or how the vendor it wants me to interact with that device. That's great, Brian. I know we're running out of time, but hopefully, well, let's, well, hopefully, we'll see if we have time. I can come and see your your demo, uh, SD-WAN demo. So, everyone, I want to thank you for watching. I want to thank Brian for spending some time with me. Brian, how can people get hold of you? Yep. So you can get me on Twitter at Brian twenty five six zero seven, and that's B R Y A N twenty five six zero seven. The other spelling of Brian is wrong. All of those other Brian's are wrong. <laughs> Uh, you can also get me on GitHub at github.com, Bryburn. I've got a couple of repositories up there. Probably the one that I'm the most proud of is I wrote a provisioning script for turning up uh, iOS XE guest shell on a router. So if you want to start playing around with some programmability aspects on the router, but you can get access to me either, either of those two paths. So Brilliant. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to visit David's YouTube channel at David Bumble, where you can subscribe and watch all of his videos. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Catch you next time on the David Bumble Networking Podcast. All the best. Take care.